It's an amazing thing to look at something once you've finished it. I think architecture particularly can be very slow. So you can work on a project for five years and then not until the end of that do you kind of get the satisfaction that illustrator or painter might get after they make a painting in a day. And looking at some of the workspace projects we've done in Stratford and seeing how you know you build something and then people will inhabit it and then make it their place of work or in Liverpool you know build a home and then people will make it their home yeah it is an incredible feeling welcome to Soho House Stories with me George Lamb in this series of shows I'm going to be talking to inspirational people from all walks of life as they share with me what drives them and how they got to where they are now this time we're talking to Joe Halligan so my name's Joe and I'm a member of the Collective Assemble. We do a range of work across the fields of architecture, art, design. Assemble was formed in 2010 when a group of friends who'd studied architecture at Cambridge together started work on a self-build project in East London. There's 15 people that work at Assemble. Most people studied architecture. There's people who studied like English literature. It's like a trained accountant. Lots of different backgrounds. Since then, they've worked on everything from community playgrounds to art galleries to dance schools. Their most notable project is the redevelopment of Granby Four Streets in Liverpool, which has been going on since 2013 and won them the Turner Prize in 2015. The first time people normally find out about a building is when it's built. But really, it's like we're just trying to work with you to try and do something that we're both happy with. A couple of years ago, I read an article about Assemble and about what they were doing in Liverpool. And I just thought it was so brilliant turning this area of Liverpool that had been in decline for 30 years round. And I just thought that's how things should look. And so I reached out to Assemble to see if maybe one day we might be able to do some stuff together. So the first thing I want to talk about really is, is let's start off talking about architecture. Yeah. Like, what do you see as architecture's role in society? Start with the easy ones, yeah. hey? Yeah. Um, it's funny asking an architect that. I think, you know, there's this whole history, isn't there, of architects becoming obsessed with their buildings and thinking that, like, you know, their work is the most important. It's what shapes cities. It's what people live in, you know. It's going to be the thing which is changing societies. And I think, like, being an architect, obviously, you have to believe that your work's important. But I think it's definitely true that architecture is a kind of, litmus test or like a way of showing what a society thinks is important you know and you can see it from the stuff that was built like post-war the social housing compared to the stuff that's built now for like wealthy offshore companies and that really kind of states a lot doesn't it I mean that tells you a lot about where politics is at tells you a lot about where society is at where people think it's important to spend money so this seems like a nice point to ask you then about the project you did in Vancouver called The Good, The Bad and The Allegory. What exactly was behind the thinking there? So that was a project that we invited over to Vancouver to do. It was with a kind of arts group called The Western Front. And basically Vancouver is a kind of uber London or something. You know, it's a huge amount of 
international investment coming in, like foreign investment, building loads of stuff. It is crazy. Like you go along the streets and you see billboards and they've got real estate agents' faces on and they're like celebrities there. And we did this series of works and we basically made, made these two murals. And it comes from, I think it's Siena. In the town hall there, on the wall, there are these allegories. So these images which depict a scene. And it's in this room that the governing body of the town make the decisions about what they should build next, what the town should be. And basically there's, there's one which is like good governance and there's one that's bad. One depicts like greed and, you know, some people having a party in the corner, but then other people, you know, lying, like starving on the other side. And then the other one shows a more even society. It's a bit more utopian, you know, where it's like everyone's on a level and they have enough fruit because people are farming it and then other people are buying it. And it's this idea that at the moment there is there's like something missing. Well, there's certainly in Vancouver, you know, that there is no idea about, you know, like like governing in a good way or a bad way. And it's so we made these with these kind of two images. One which is using like renewables and has, you know, nicer colours and the other one which is I don't know, where you see the images. Right, okay, but one that's essentially showing the kind of dystopian future that lays ahead if we carry on on the same path. Exactly. And the idea that, you know, you have these on the wall and, you know, they would help kind of remind you. But I, I love that in Siena, in essentially the kind of planning office... Yeah. You've got two huge murals and one shows this is society looking good and yeah. this is society looking bad. Exactly. Like, think on. Yeah. You know. And that's like 15th century or something. <laughs> right. Like... So they knew back then. Yeah, 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 they knew. How much do you think architecture affects the mood of a city? I mean, it is the city, isn't it? I mean, climate is something to do with it. But, you know, Manhattan feels like Manhattan as does, you know, particularly like coming from Birmingham. Birmingham feels like Birmingham. London feels like London. I mean, they all feel different because of the architecture that's built there. And a society will build what it builds. And it's like architecture is the kind of outcome of that. Because so much of architecture is determined before the architects gets involved. It's about the economics of how it's paid for, you know. If we decided that the state was going to build housing again, it would look a lot different, I believe, to the housing that's being built now because it's got different priorities and there's different economics. So you say that architecture defines the city, right? So like, talk to me about Birmingham. What, like, what does that say about Birmingham? That it's, it's, what, it's a functional kind of industrial place? Yeah, it's a place of manufacture. You know, it's where the Rover car plant was. And it's like my grandfather worked at Rover all his life and lived down the road. It's also the home of chocolate. You know, it has Cadbury's, which is shipped worldwide. You know, like around Cadbury's is a very interesting set of housing. It is like a utopia. The Cadbury family built a factory, but they decided that, you know, for the workers, they should build houses and each house should be beautiful. You know, it's part of the kind of arts and crafts movement and that, you know, like decoration and seeing the labor and carvings in wood or something is kind of inspiring that there's something seeing like a labor of love. You know, it's like, you know, seeing someone's handiwork is. And that every garden should have a tree and, you know, it should be like a kind of idyllic place. And whether they thought people would work harder because of that or or not, I don't know. But it was this idea that, you know, 
you should look after people and you should make an environment where they're happy. And there's an amazing village green and, and an amazing school with like an organ which plays the bells. And it still is idyllic. You know, you go there on Christmas Eve and you sing carols on the green with like everyone else there. And the architecture and the urban planning is still there. So even though the people have changed, they're not all workers for Cabri now, it still has this feeling. The initial discussions that led to the formation of Assemble began in the summer of 2009, when a group of friends, most of whom had studied architecture, had just graduated from Cambridge. We'd left uni, moved to London, got a job in an architect. That's what most people did. And then worked for six months, nine months, and then started talking, you know, between friends from uni about whether there's something we could do in our spare time, like a hobby, where we could be more involved with the process. When we graduated that summer, a couple of girls from university built a thing called Frank's, which is still there in Peckham on the rooftop as part of the Bold Tendencies sculpture exhibition that kind of happened there every year. And they built a cafe and it was made out of scaffold boards and lots of us went and helped out for a day or a week to build it. And it just felt really cool, you know picking up a drill, building something, and then seeing people sitting on the seats that you've made or serving, I think it was Campari, like serving Campari at the bar, you know. And um, that felt really great. And I remember I was in a band with another guy from uni and um, we basically secured a tour. So we're doing a little tour. I was driving a camper van and I was saying to Lewis, you know, wouldn't it be great if, you know, we could do one of those, those projects, like just being fully involved in the project like being able to design, make decisions, build it together, work together every day. And it was like, yeah, yeah, that would be good. <laughs> and then, yeah, I guess like that summer we built something uh, and ran it. And it was called the Cinerolium. It was a petrol station on the Clerkenwell Road, which had been, you know, disused for, for years, I think. It, it was owned by a developer. But, with, you know, it's, it's 2010, so it's just post-crash. And they got no interest in developing it. They're difficult to develop anyway in petrol stations because you've got lots of contaminated earth. So we wanted to do something there. And we spoke to the developer and said, you know, look, can we have it for three months? And they actually, they were actually chuffed about it because they said, you know, they're worried that the shop would get squatted. So we got the site and then we kind of just riffing about what we could do with it. So it's like, you know, and it's, it sounds so cheesy now, but it's like mini golf or could it be like a go-kart track or like could it be a drive-in cinema? And then it was like, well, no one's got a car in London anyway, so it'd just be a cinema. And then the pun on petroleum and cinema, like cinerolium. So then we, you know, we built it. We put a curtain around the outside and we made seats out of scaffold boards and, you know, we ran like a little bar with popcorn and we made outfits and we did it for six weeks, and it was wicked. And it, it was a hugely successful project. It got a lot of press. and <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there was only 100 seats or something, so we obviously we sold out every night. But, yeah, it was, you know. And it was... I, they sound a bit naff now, like pop-ups and stuff, but at the time it did feel interesting. And I think, like, particularly in the architectural press, like the idea of a group of students coming and doing something, when it was so hard for architects at that time. Right, because I suppose nothing was getting greenlit at that point. Yeah, and it's like the architects are the first people to go. So it's like you, there might still be buildings that are being built, but it's like, are we looking to build anymore? And it's like, absolutely not. 
So I think you know it was it was it was really hard time for architects. And then so uh, you did Cinerolium and it was a success. Mm-hmm. Was there a kind of uh, like a, a moment where you all looked round at each other and thought, "This is actually what I want to do. I don't want to be just another cog in these huge." projects that I never actually get to see. It's a funny transition. So Assemble didn't exist as an entity. It was just a group of people. So there's like 20 people. And so it finished and then everyone had ran out of holiday. So they went back to work, essentially. But then there was a decision. It's like, oh, we should do this again next summer for real. And it's like, we should get more money. You know, there was a lot of thinking about temporary projects and the potential that they have to show that there's, you know, spaces in the city, disused space in the city to show that they have potential. So we were like, it'd be good to tie it in with something which has a kind of longer term vision. And so there's this practice called MUF, Art and Architecture. And two of the people from what is now Assemble were working there. And they'd done a series of work in Hackney Wick where they'd identified spots where they thought, you know, like this could become a really cool public space or this could, you know, it's like we could do a project here and make it car free and this could. They had a document of all of these and there was one in an underpass. And they said, you know, we want to do something here. Why don't you do a temporary project this summer and we'll see if it's any good? I mean, it's not much of a risk, is it? It's like, we'll do it. If it's rubbish, then we just won't do a permanent thing there. And if it's great, then then we'll do something. So we built a kind of timber building, which looked like it was made of bricks. So like a fantasy building. And it had a pitched roof that went up between these two motorways, the A12. Oh, wow. So it's like, you know, cars going one way on one side and cars going the other. So you see the pitched roof there. And it's like, it's I guess it's a bit of a joke on like these houses where it's like there was a street there and this house was, was there and they had to make this motorway, but the person wouldn't sell. You know, so they have to build it around them. So it was a kind of fantasy project. And it was about giving a narrative to this underpass, you know, and like that it could be like a special place where like amazing stuff happens. And there was much more of a, you know, the first project we built with lots of different people and people from the street would just come and help build it because we were just, you know, we were just building it. And they were like, what are you doing? And we were like, well, why don't you help? And this one, we were much more aware of, how building something and engaging the public through building is a way of getting them to feel, you know, involved in the building and having a very open construction process like that. It's basically like if you just build something on the street, after like a week or so, people will come up to you and be like, look, I've watched you do this for a week. It's like, what are you up to? So it's quite a good way of like genuinely engaging people. Over the next couple of years, Assemble continued in the vein of community-led projects, setting up a temporary theatre in Chichester and reviving a town centre in New Addington, Croydon. Their base Sugarhouse Studios was set up in Stratford in 2011 and has since moved to Bermondsey. One of the things I find most interesting about Assemble is how they work as a team. With a completely flat hierarchy and as a collective, they decide on which projects to undertake. So there's a whole layer of interest I think in Assemble for us which is about like the Assemble project like what does it mean to work you know without a boss what does it mean to work collectively like we've invented almost our own governance so we run ourselves on policies now it gets crazy but it's like we have a series of policies which anyone can put forward so there there is like an Assemble work policy which tells you like whether something's 
the kind of work that Assemble would do or not. And it tries to separate out people's private lives, the way in which we decide to run ourselves. So there's a kind of little governing body, which is four people, which changes every three months. Uh, and they have control of like dealing with the, the kind of day to day um, about new work coming in, new work going out. I mean, we try and work in a way where everyone's allowed to do whatever they want. That is a rule that we've decided. It's like everyone can do whatever they want. But within that is this idea that obviously, you know, if you do something that you want and it means someone else can't do what they want, then that's not really fair, is it? So how do you get, do you have a kind of majority <laughs> rule uh, it's all, way I, of decision making? Or I mean, most of it's based on conversation. And so I say that, you know, it's like a lot of us were friends before. So it's, it's all a negotiation. Like a marriage or like anything that you decide long term to do with someone, you know, it's like you have to change the way you act in certain situations because, you know, it makes other people feel uncomfortable and they will do the same for you. So it is the kind of family and it's a constant negotiation. And there are times where people do stuff that really upsets other people. And then we sit down, we have a conversation about it and say, you know, like we have to find a different way of working. We can't do this kind of thing again. A lot of people might hear all of that and say, that sounds like hard work, Joe. Yeah. What do you say to them? I think it is hard work. I think it's really inefficient. I mean, because it's like you have to have everyone's voice heard and it would be much easier if one person was in charge and it was like, look, that's what we're doing. You're not very happy about Suck it, but it that's up. what Let's we're get doing. With it. Yeah. yeah. But then it's, you know, it is about, you know, when you feel like you have ownership over something collectively, there's a kind of something which comes with that which means that actually it's like work doesn't feel so much like work. You know, it's not so hard. It's like I'm just working with my friends and we're just doing, everyone's doing whatever they want anyway. We're just doing, we've chosen to do this because we all want to do it. And so at times when a meeting's going on till 11, 12 at night, because everyone's having to talk and hear their opinion, <laughs> you know, that is rubbish. But, you know, the flip side is, is that, you know, it feels like you have control of your destiny. You're not working for someone else. It's like we're all working together for a kind of greater thing. In 2013, Assemble began a project that would get them national recognition when they began work in Toxteth, an area of Liverpool with a really troubled past. 1981, so like early 80s, it was a really terrible time for their area. I mean, it was completely lawless for two or three days. It's the only time in England where the army's been called out to try and stop what was, what was happening. More than 100 youths fought a pitched battle against the police. Some were as young as 12, the oldest no more than 20. It lasted for eight hours. And, at the end and it was, I mean, they call them the uprisings. It was really on the back of, like, endless, like, racism, like a systematic racist police force and victimisation of the area. We've been saying for... A long, long time now um, that something has got to be done in terms of jobs, in terms of economic future, and in terms of giving the black community some future in society. After that happened, it, it, it kind of it had a very bad reputation. A lot of stuff was damaged. And then the council moved council tenants out and then kind of made housing associations move their tenants out with the idea that the houses weren't fit for purpose there's also ideas that's about segregating a community that's theirs the community which you know was seen as the root of the riots and so by like moving them out and separating and spreading them throughout the the rest of the city it's a way of making sure that doesn't happen again housing is a major priority through neighborhood improvement schemes 
These will employ more youngsters, as will other plans to encourage new business. They saw that, you know, that was a problem, that area was a problem. And so it's like if we demolish it and clear people off, then maybe the problem will go away. But then there's people that are living there who had bought their houses, perhaps, that aren't worth anything now. You can't sell them if you live on a street where no one else lives, who, you know, didn't want to sell their house, you know, couldn't, but also didn't want to. You know, they were proud of that area. And they live there, you know, with the council not collecting their bins anymore, the police refusing to go into that area uh, with, like, rubbish just on the street strewn. But this group of people who were living there kind of kind of got together and decided that they were going to try and do something about it, that they weren't going to move. So they took up domestic actions, like painting the boarded-up houses with curtains so it looked like people were living there, and, like, gardening, so, like, using the street and the fact that cars weren't going there to, to be a kind of public garden and planting it. And when we first walked kind of round there, and you see that there's more life on these streets that only... 10 people were living with 100 houses than there are in, in lots of London. That there's like plants everywhere and there's lots of love tending for all of that. There's tables in the, in the streets. They set up a market which runs monthly. It's kind of, it, you know, it, it's like through these bad times it really brought out an amazing community spirit. all of this was happening and we kind of joined in. We'd met them through doing another project up the road and then we were approached by a friend of a friend who had uh, someone who basically had money and wanted to invest that money in, you know, helping do up some of these houses. So we put together a master plan which was to do up this one street with this social investor and then also to help the people that are living there do up 10 houses on, on their street. And then it was also working with housing associations to redo some of their houses, like two or three, and also a cooperative of like young people who had some money who were willing to kind of fund their houses themselves. So it's a document which brings together five or six different parties, you know, to, to try and to try and I don't want to use regenerate because in a way, you know, it was it was already there. But I guess Regalvanize almost. Yeah, right? regalvanize, yeah. And make a, a kind of diverse community where there's lots, you know, it's like there's lots of different people from rented people to people that own their houses to people which own their houses, but they're at like a kind of social, they're sold at a lower price to... Right, this is the Community Land Trust. Yeah, so the Community Land Trust is is basically just a vehicle. So it's just something which you can form, which allows you to receive assets which are then held in the community interest. So it was a group of, you know, like like 20, 30 people who formed this company. And then they that allows the, the kind of council to give them the house. So it's not owned by any of the members, but, you know, as long as it's used for the, for the community interest. And then they developed those houses. So they used us as the architects. And then they got some funding from the social investor. They also got some funding which they raised from people like Nationwide. And then they did them up, spent the money on them, and then sold them, but sold them with covenants on so that they can't be resold for more than the increase in the median wage. So there's no property speculation. So if wages go up, the house goes up in line. If wages go down, 
their houses also go down in line. And also they put another covenant on, which is that you kind of had to prove that you had a connection to the area. So it's like the inverse of what the council was trying to do historically, which is like, you know, get people from the area out and other people in. It's about actually those people that were displaced. We want you to come back and reform the community that was there. And have they come back? Yeah. So they, so there's 10 houses that were done up, five for rent, because some people can only afford to rent, and then five for sale. And they're, they're rented and sold. And so the price of those houses will stay pegged to the average wage in that borough forever and ever. Forever, yeah, forever. That's fantastic. Genuinely, that just sounds like the most common sense, kind of practical, <laughs> pragmatic idea and way of doing something. I don't understand why. Why is that not happening in every city around the country? I think it's easier in Liverpool when no one wants the houses. The, the council were, were giving them away for a pound. And they're saying, like, if you can prove that you can do them up, then you can have them. I mean, that's not the case in, in London, where it's like you also have to pay for the land and then do the house. But yeah, it's as, a, as an idea, just removes houses from being a commodity, which you can speculate that, oh, house prices have gone up 35% this year. or You know, it's like they're no longer a commodity. So fast forward to 2015 and you guys have won the Turner Prize for this project, right? Yeah, it's, it's a funny story. The Turner Prize judges will all nominate someone. And it was one day when we were in our old office in Stratford and this guy, Alistair Hudson, came round. He was one of the judges. He doesn't tell you that at the time and said, you know, I'm interested in the work that you're doing. And, you know, we showed him round and we were showing him some of the like mantelpieces and, and kind of craft stuff that we were making for the houses in Liverpool. And we spoke to like some other stuff. And then you get a phone call. You know, I got a phone call like a month later from like the Tate. And they're like, oh, you've been nominated for the Turner Prize. And we were like, we didn't know there was a Turner Prize for architecture. No, it's weird. And they were like, no, the one for, you know, it's the Turner Prize for art. And so then it's like, wow, did not expect that. Was there a lot of backlash with people saying this isn't art? Yeah, there's always questions about, you know, that it's very provocative, the Turner Prize, isn't it? And a lot of it is about, like, what is art? Like, does it have to be in a gallery? Does it have to be a gallery show? Or can it be this? And there's a history of, like, you know, like William Morris and going back to, like, Cadbury in Birmingham, you know, this idea of, like, right, you know, where art does art stop? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Or is, is, like, the building of a community also art and, like, the craft that goes into making a masterpiece? So, yes. <laughs> if you want my two pence worth so um, we set up a ceramics factory in Liverpool well a factory is a bit of a big net workshop so with the opportunity of the Turner Prize you know they said you've been nominated and obviously you've got to put a show on and we, we haven't got a show to put on so we thought how can you use um, all of the publicity that comes with this kind of crazy thing this crazy you know, circus that comes to town once a year to talk about art. Oh, how can we use that for, for good for the community so that it's not just something which, you know, comes and, you know, doesn't really help? How can we help? So then we thought, well, we should, you know, we should use it to try and launch a business. So we looked at the work we were doing and the, the kind of ceramics that we were making for the houses from the tiles and the mantelpieces to the door handles. And we said, what if we ran a pilot program at the end of the street in one of the corner shops um, and set up a business making all of this stuff. And then at the Turner Prize, let's have our installation or show as a showroom. 
And it's like everyone who comes to the Turner Prize can buy a tile or a mantelpiece or a doorknob. And not for Damien Hurst prices, but for, you know... 12 quid. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, and then we'll use all of that, all of that money, hopefully, and the publicity to then basically give this business uh, a really great start in life. Because it's hard starting a business, yeah. particularly, I think, you know, like in, in that area of Liverpool. Selling reformed doorknobs <laughs> exactly, into, yeah, exactly. in, in Toxteth. So it's, um, you know, that's something that's now been running for, what, three years? And it's going from, from strength to strength, so... And that's well, I know. I've, bought, I've just bought a load of. I just bought a load of plates. They're yeah. amazing. These splatware plates. Good, George. Yeah. Good, good, good. They're still on sale. Are they still on sale? There's loads of stuff on at GrambyWorkshop.co.uk. And so, what's next for Assemble? Then, what are you guys planning at the moment? So we're doing like a like touring exhibitions. So we're doing a touring exhibition of this foam playground. We're doing a new art gallery, new public art gallery for Goldsmiths University, which is huge for us. I mean, that is a big architecture project with a capital A, like that is, and that will open in September. That is very exciting. We're doing something very top secret at the Venice Biennale this year, Architecture Biennale. Um, We are also working on doing some work in Glasgow. So we've got an adventure playground we set up there. It's a kind of ongoing project. We've just moved to Bermondsey. We've got a kind of workspace. We're very passionate about working and facilities for working in the city so people can build stuff. And you've, you've split it into a load of units, right? So people can yeah. come and you've got people renting spaces and working and building. and Yeah, exactly. With then like big shared carpentry facilities. So there's like carpenters there, but there's also illustrators, artists. We've got a really good music scene now at Sugar House, which I'm very chuffed about with some really good London labels that are working out of there. Yeah, it's good. And is there a kind of manifesto almost of what you've got to, the criteria of what you're interested in? Or I mean, previously we've said if, if like two people in Assemble want to do it, then we should probably do it, you know, as a project. We used to say something on our website, we changed our website now, but it was quite good, which was about like, I guess, trying to break down the the difference between like people and cities so it's like making people more aware of like how cities are built and i guess it's about like like realizing that you know cities are places which are kind of malleable that can be changed i think a lot of the reason that people get so annoyed with the the new buildings that are being built in the uk they don't understand the system there's this guy david knight who's who says that you know the problem is is that planning's not very popular and actually like you know, people have got great, you know, ideas and they've got great eye for design and stuff. And if they could just engage more with the planning system, you know, like cities are just things which are formed by humans and you can interact with that. And the more you can engage with that, I think the better cities that we're going to get. And so it's about breaking down, you know, these barriers and getting people to realise that they can really make a difference. And it's not very hard. Joe, thank you so much. Pleasure, George. Since the day I met you, I've been really impressed and inspired by what you're doing and, um, and I wish you the best of luck with everything you're doing moving forward. And I hope one day we get to build something together. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. 
This episode of Stories was brought to you by Radio Wolfgang and Soho House, and it featured me, George Lamb, talking to Joe Halligan from Assemble. If you want to find out more about the incredible work that Assemble are doing, get yourself onto www.assemblestudio.co.uk.